This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. And then let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 43. Genesis 43. If you're not used to looking at a Bible, uh, Genesis is the first book, and you can find the big number 43 there, and then the smaller numbers are those verses. We're going to look at that whole chapter. That's right, the whole one. But uh, the big number 43, Genesis 43, that'll be our passage. You'll be really helped to have a copy in front of you of God's Word as we go through it. And we need his help as we look to his word. And so would you join me in praying? Lord, we know that you know all things. You've seen all things. And that includes everything about us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would just get that perspective, that we stand before you just as we are. And, Lord, we come needy of you, desirous of you to know you more. Jesus, to to know you and love you and to walk with you and like you, to love the way that you love. Lord, we confess it's so hard. So much of our flesh fights against the kind of love that you have shown us. So we pray that you would show us the power that you have given us at the cross to walk like you walk. And the power that 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 love has on others. And the joy that's there for us. And we pray that you would dim the lights on all the other things that we're pursuing for joy and happiness and contentment. That we might see you and pursue you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Would you now build us up as we look to your word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It can be dangerous at times to uh, rank different kinds of sins and compare them. Uh, what's, is, is lust worse than anger or is greed worse than, than gluttony? But I think Cornelius uh, Plantinga, he's a philosopher, may have a point when he ranks envy as a slightly more sinister sin than covetousness. Here's what he means. Quote, envy is a nastier sin than mere covetousness. What an envier wants is not, first of all, what another has. What an envier wants is for another not to have it. To envy is to resent somebody else's good so much that one is tempted to destroy it. Now, the coveter has empty hands and wants them to be filled with somebody else's goods, but the envier has empty hands and therefore wants empty hands of the envied. Envy, moreover, carries overtones of personal resentment. An envier resents not only somebody else's blessing, but also the one who has been blessed. Sometimes we we don't recognize envy 
in our own hearts until something bad happens to someone else, someone that we envy. We wish we had their ministry, their money, their family, their popularity, and then they fall. Their life is destroyed for whatever reason. And this kind of concealed delight rises up in our hearts. That's envy in full bloom, exposing itself. And I think you know what I mean. Being secretly happy that someone no longer has what we wish we had. The Bible reveals our hearts, doesn't it? As we look to the Word, and often we don't like what we see about our own hearts. But it also holds out a hope for wicked, broken, dark hearts like ours. The hope of drastic transformation. We find the sin of envy across the biblical storyline. So Cain uh, envied Abel and killed him. Saul envied David and tried multiple times to kill him. And of course, in our study of Genesis and this narrative of Joseph and his brothers, this has been a recurring theme. Uh, those dreams that, that pictured his brothers bowing down to him. You remember those dreams in chapter 37? Those, those dreams gnawed at their pride. The brothers envied Joseph's place as their father's favorite. And so they planned to kill him. They didn't really want that special coat. We, we see evidence of that. They, they just tore it up and sent it to their father. They just didn't want him to have it. They didn't want him to have anything. So they stripped him and beat him and threw him in a pit to die. And as the brothers sat there to eat, Joseph's in the pit, crying for help in the background, one voice arises above the others, Judah. He has this idea to sell Joseph to these Ishmaelite traders that are coming for money. So ironically, he saves Joseph's life, even though his motives were wicked, Joseph comes up out of the pit. He's then shackled, taken to Egypt as a slave. And then from chapter 37 on, we see God's hand of, of blessing on him. Some 20 years of the way that, that God uses and works through Joseph and is pursuing the hearts of those brothers as well. So we've seen Joseph rise from a mere slave in Potiphar's house to second in command. And then after being falsely accused in jail and jailed, he, he rises to oversee the prison. And eventually he's lifted out of the prison and he, and he is risen and, and arrives at Pharaoh's right hand of power as Lord over the whole land. God gave Joseph an interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams. Seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. So Joseph then organized and ran this system to, to distribute and save food so that when the famine came, all the earth would come to Egypt to buy food. And this is what brought Joseph's brothers to Egypt. When they came, Joseph recognized them, even though they didn't know him. He initially treated them, if you remember, he treated them harshly. He accused them of being spies and he gives them the first of many tests by sending them to go get their youngest brother, Benjamin. And, and while they go, he's going to detain Simeon in prison until they return. 
So Joseph sends them home to Jacob with plenty of food for their families and the money that they brought to buy the food in their sacks. Now, this is where in the movie you get that little thing that fades in that tells you a timeline, and that was two years ago. And the food is running out. And that brings us to Genesis 43, our passage this morning. And my prayer is that as we look at it, we will see more than just the story, but we will see God as the brothers interact with one another, as they interact with their father, as they interact with Joseph, God is all over this thing. So as we walk through the passage, I'm just going to point out three glimpses that we see of God in three scenes. Okay, so if you're taking notes, here they are up front if you want to know. Scene one, verses one to 14, we're going to see a picture of the love of God. A picture of the love of God. Scene one. Scene two, verses 15 down to 25, We're going to observe a picture of the peace of God, the peace of God. And then finally in scene three, verses 26 to the end of the chapter, a picture of the mercy of God, the love of God, the peace of God, and then the mercy of God. And of course, as we look at Genesis 43, we not only see these realities about God, but we pray they're going to point us to the enfleshed person of love and peace, and mercy, Jesus Christ himself. Where else will we find love, and peace, and compassion, and mercy rising to meet evil, and sin, and conquering it? Let's think first about what this passage shows us about the love of God. So number one, scene one, the love of God. So look with me at your Bibles there in verse one. Chapter 43, verse one. Now the famine was severe in the land, And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. Now, I know it's been a few weeks, but I just want to kind of bring us back up to speed and remember the context of what's happening so that these words can kind of have their rightful effect. And we're just reading through the story. We're going to see it in that way. At this moment, remember, Joseph is holding Simeon hostage, in a sense, in custody, until the brothers bring Benjamin back as proof that they weren't spies, okay? So, so that's the reality right now. But remember, Jacob wasn't having any of that. He did not want to bring Benjamin at all. Look at his words back in chapter 42, verse 38, the last verse there. But he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead, in reference to Joseph, and he is, not, he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you were to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. So not only is this piercing and and painful for the other sons, Benjamin's the only son left, what what are we? But he's refusing to help Simeon and to ensure more food for the family. And and we know later from Genesis 45, verse 6, that if this, if this process with, with meeting with Joseph began about the time of the, the start of the famine, that it's been about two years, two years that Simeon's been locked up and Jacob's doing nothing. He's the only reason that they have not gone back to Egypt. But now when food runs out, it's like he's telling them, hey, could you just run to H-E-B real quick and pick up a few things for me? He says it so nonchalantly, doesn't he? Go again and buy a little food. I think Jacob's leadership here is just a picture of someone wanting to have their cake and eat it too, as we say, okay? It's a picture of someone wanting to save their life without entrusting it to God. 
from the Lord. He wants to set the agenda. He wants to make the rules. And so the brothers are going to just push back on that eventually, especially one brother. Now, if you remember, Reuben is the oldest. He's kind of disqualified himself from leadership because of his sexual misconduct with one of Jacob's wives. And then Levi and Simeon would be next in line, but they have disqualified themselves because of their violence toward the men in Shechem. And so we are beginning to see another brother take leadership in the family, with the family and the brothers, and that's going to be Judah. So Judah speaks there in verse 3. Look with me. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face until your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face until your brother is with you. So he's just reminding Jacob of the, of the situation. And sometimes we don't like to be reminded of reality. He doesn't like hearing about about these, these facts. Verse six, Israel said, why do you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? Why did you even bring that up? What did that have to do with anything? Well, again, I mean, this, this sounds a little bit like just whining, I think. Uh, he, he's focused on how this whole thing has affected him, not Simeon, uh, not the others. He's not apologizing for the way he's treated them. He's, again, just focused on himself. And so Judah's going to respond back with the facts. Uh, Verse 7, they replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to those questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And the answer is, of course, no. They didn't volunteer this information. Somehow this man knew questions to ask and they were trying to prove that they weren't spies. Joseph had them in this brilliant place. And so this is not a time to feel sorry for yourself, Jacob. We're running out of food. We have to do something. And so, so here Judah is going to really show himself to be the, the, the future leader, the chief, the king of the tribes, of the brothers. So look at what he says in verse 8. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and all, also all our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would, now we would have returned twice. This is beautiful. There are several, what we might call callbacks that Moses gives us here that I think emphasize the transformation that Judah has been on, that, that is taking him to be able to say something like this. Uh, that phrase, um, that we may live and not die, that's a theme, if you remember, that we've seen really throughout this chapter dealing with famine, chapter 42. It's just related to their need for rescue, and it's going to culminate when Joseph realizes that, that he is a type of savior for the world. This is what God intends, a rescue. Life and death are at stake. Notice he mentions even for the little ones, the future of, of Abraham's family. Judah has been so far a selfish 
opportunist. That's who he's been. He didn't care about the fact that Tamar, he was, he was obligated to give Tamar another one of his sons to be married. No, he's just going to ignore that after the others had died. Let her just be a widow. Now he's concerned about others, the little ones. And then he volunteers himself to be a pledge of Benjamin's safety. Where have we seen that word, pledge, on, on Judah's lips in the book of Genesis? It was when he was prostituting or propositioning, propositioning a prostitute, bargaining with a prostitute who actually turned out to be his daughter-in-law. So if you missed that part, sorry, you're gonna have to go back and listen. I, can't, I don't have time to go in and explain all that. I can't just throw that out there. That's in Genesis 38. And if you remember, when he didn't have payment for her, he gave her a pledge. Signet, cord, staff. Until payment comes, take this. And later, when Tamar, who was his daughter-in-law, disguised, was accused of being pregnant by immorality, and Judah ordered that she be burned, it was this pledge that she sent him that opened up his eyes to his own sin. He's been a transformed person ever since that moment when he said, she is more righteous than I. Many look at that as his conversion. Case in point, now he's offering himself as a pledge. Himself as a pledge for his brother. But there's more. This isn't the first time we've seen one of the brothers make this kind of offer to Jacob. Chapter 42, Reuben says, remember, hey, I'll take Benjamin, and if I don't bring him back, you can kill my sons. What a contrast between offering to sacrifice someone else and offering to sacrifice yourself. Judah says, if I fail to bring Benjamin back, verse 9, let me bear the blame, the guilt, forever. Me. He completely is turning his life over to Jacob as a substitute for Benjamin. Let me die in his place. Let me bear the guilt as long as it takes, even if it's forever. And we know Jacob would hold him to this. Friends, this is the transforming love of God on display. Only the love of God can save someone like Judah from being selfish to now getting to this place of wanting to sacrifice himself for others. It's someone's life who has been changed like this that's going to hear these words from Jacob on his dying, on his deathbed as he's giving a blessing to his sons. He's going to hear this. Genesis 49, verse 8, you can just hear it. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Judah is gonna be the chief, the king, and from him will come the king, the chief, the Lord of lords. In Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1, it's just striking. As we've been studying this together, and I read this, it was just striking to me. Matthew 1, verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah. 
and his brothers. From the line of Judah would be born a son that would also love his father. He would love him so much that he would lay his life down for his brothers. He would offer himself on a cross to bear the guilt of all his brothers and sisters. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Friend, this is the love of God. He loves people like Judah. People like you and me who are absolutely messed up, who have sinned, who have rebelled against God. Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, came to die for us. He didn't just offer. He didn't just throw it out there as a theoretical scenario. He actually did it. He actually paid the full price for our sin. He purchased us because we owe God an eternity of wrath-bearing torment for our sin. And Jesus took our place. You want to know what's happening at the cross? You want to know what's happening there as he's in the, the tomb? You know what's happening to Jesus? He's bearing wrath for his people. All of it. So that the cup of God's wrath for all of his people is completely dry. Only Jesus could do that. And he did that. Come to him. Trust him. Love him. Accept him. Follow him as your Lord and Savior. If you're a member of our church and you're thinking about this and thinking about how this affects the way that you love one another, this is, this is the shape of it, isn't it? This is the shape of how you're to love other people the way Jesus loved. Dying to ourselves. Living for the good of others. Putting ourselves in a position to bear the burdens of others because our burdens have been borne by Christ. This is the path, and it is a path to joy. John 15, verse 10, Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And we know part of those commandments were dying for his people. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So Jesus lays his life down for others and now calls us to abide in that same love for others as well, that our joy might be full. When we love like Jesus, we are pursuing joy. The most satisfied people, I think, on the planet and in this church are the ones who are serving others, who are laying their lives down for others. Selfishness and greed and self-preservation do not lead to joy. So, so do you want joy? So if you do, see Jill for the nursery signups. The, the name of that training class is going to be how to have joy, right? Because we're laying our lives down. It might not be my calling to change diapers, to spend time with kids in children's church or whatever it is. But I'm, I'm doing it because of what's been done for me. I'm investing in some discipling relationships right now that are, that are messy. Or I want to invest in those relationships that are messy. 
I want to reach out to my neighborhood and I, uh, get married, raise a family. And, and notice just the way that that implies dying to yourself and living for others day in and day out as the Lord allows. Immerse yourself in relationships in the local church. Take a trip overseas and be awed at the, the, the need that's there. If you want to find your life, you need to lose it. That's what Jacob is finding out. And he's going to do it. He's going to decide to trust God and let go of the most precious thing to him, his son. Look at verse 11. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. A little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned to the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother. There it is. And arise. Go again to the man. These details that Moses gives us are not throwaway sentences. Uh, If you remember, Jacob did something like this with Esau. When there was an issue there, he sent these caravans with gifts and to kind of appease him. And now he doesn't know it, but he's doing that with his son. He doesn't know that yet, but he will. And this present that he sends, it's almost identical, word for word, what Moses tells us the Ishmaelite traders had when, when, they, when, when Joseph was sold into slavery. Genesis, in chapter 37, they were bearing, verse 25, uh, gum, balm, and myrrh, and on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Incidentally, those sound a lot like what the, the, the wise men brought to Jesus. Those same items are now coming back to Joseph as a gift from his brothers. Friends, you can trust God's justice. It is always perfect, always on time. It's as if Joseph finally, or Jacob finally realizes in verse 14 that he must lose his life in order to save it. So listen to his heart, verse 14. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man and may he send back your, older, your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. He refers to, to God here as El Shaddai, God Almighty, which, which is really the way that God is referred to in those Abrahamic passages, those promises in Genesis 17. It kind of brings those back to view, uh, all the families of the earth being blessed through this family line. Ultimately, though, Jacob is praying for his sons, praying for the situation that God would grant mercy. And notice the ambiguity of his prayer to send back your other brother and Benjamin. Well, certainly he has Simeon in view and we would think that he does, but I, I like the ambiguity that Moses just kind of leaves in there because sometimes when we pray, we know this, God does more than we can ask or imagine. Ephesians 3.20. And he's about to do that with Jacob's prayer. He's gonna bring back another brother, one that he thought was dead. When you pray, remember who you're praying to. That he does more than we ask. More than we ask. When we ask, he does more than we ask or can even imagine. Like Esther's famous statement, if I perish, I perish. He says, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. Take him. I'm gonna trust the Lord. Let's see what happens there in scene two as we think about the peace of God. 
This is an example, a picture of the peace of God. Look with me at verse 15. So the men took this present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin and they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men who are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. Uh, It seems again that we're in this situation where Joseph sees the brothers, they don't see him. And and so I take verse 15 to mean that they're standing before Joseph's kind of right-hand man, his steward. They don't see Joseph yet himself. And Joseph has given him instructions to prepare a meal and then invite them to his home for, for, for lunch, which in a famine, this is a big invitation. But the brothers don't know that. They don't know that information. On a side note, it's actually common knowledge that, that ranking uh, Egyptian officials maintain private dungeons in their homes. Just imagine that. I don't even want to go there. Like, what's that? It's a, oh, it's someone screaming in the dungeon. Perhaps that's where Simeon is, right? So there, there, there's a... There's a there's a fear. Okay, that's my point. A fear that the brothers have that they're not here for lunch. They're assuming the worst. And look at the way it comes out in verse 18. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was in each man's, there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us and we have brought other money down to buy with us to buy food. We do not know we put our, we do not know who put our money in our sacks. So at, at some level, the brothers are gonna, they're understanding, and we've seen this in other places, that God is sovereign and good and just and that their sin, ultimately they did against their brother is gonna show up again at some point. But friends, you know, the Bible teaches that because God is our creator, we all have an innate knowledge that he exists and that one day we'll stand before him. We all do. And so Paul speaks about this. He speaks about his God's invisible attributes and divine nature being clearly perceived by all. That's Romans 1. So clearly he says that you are without excuse. You know that much, you know it's that true about God that he exists. We're without excuse. We have this God-given conscience that alerts us to this reality. It's not saving knowledge of God but knowledge nonetheless. And oftentimes it does prick us and, and, we, and, we, and we, are, we are thinking about these realities. Paul says we don't know the truth or it's not that we don't know the truth, it's that we suppress the truth. It's like we push it out, non-believers. We're pushing it away as if it didn't exist. Did you notice that, the, the, so we have fear on display. Did you notice that the brother's fear is that Joseph, they don't know it's Joseph, is gonna do to them exactly what they did to Joseph? Did you notice that? Verse 18, they're afraid that that they're gonna be assaulted and they're gonna fall on us and make us slaves, make us servants. Proverbs 28, one says this, the wicked flee when no one pursues. 
but the righteous are as bold as a lion. There's a kind of irrational, fatalistic fear that comes from from a lack of fear ultimately in God. If we fear God, why would we be afraid of what man would do against us? There's good reason to fear if we don't know the Lord. We don't fear the Lord. It's a gift actually from God to make us uncomfortable at times, discontent with doing life our way. We know in the back of the mind that in our, he's there. Friend, I wonder if that's you this morning. I want you to know that God is offering you a way to live without fear. A life that is characterized not by fear of being found out about all of your sins, of fear of retribution, of losing everything that you've worked so hard to build, even your life. Knowing God brings peace. And the brothers are freaking out right now. But as they're talking to Joseph's steward, look at what this Egyptian says to them in verse 23. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. I love the, this is coming from an Egyptian who's, who's saying this to the, to the 12 tribes of, of leaders of the 12 tribes of Judah. You need to remember who your God is. Don't be afraid. It's like he's, he's putting peace and fear kind of at opposite ends of the spectrum saying this peace should extinguish your fear. Now, how does Joseph's servant talk like this? Uh, maybe it's because he knows Joseph. And Joseph has told him the whole story and told him a lot about his true God. Not all these other fake gods that you guys worship, but told him about the true God. I don't think he's been silent about his faith as he's been in Egypt all these years. He says, this is, you need to trust your God and the God of your father. How do they know about our father? Sometimes we need to be reminded of who our God is. He tells them that God, through human means, has put money in their sacks, treasure in their sacks. There's no problem with the money. In fact, all accounts have been settled. Here's your brother. And imagine that, that, you know, not seeing your brother for two years, and there he is, wondering if he's alive. The fear just melts away at the prospect of true peace. They don't deserve the peace, but they have it. And it's rooted in the sacrificial love that we saw in Judah. We're going to see more of that next week. Lord willing, it's rooted in Joseph's now forgiving love and compassion for his family. We'll see more about that in just a second. And it results in a sinner being released from bondage and captivity. Simeon is freed before their eyes. And this is a pattern that we see throughout scripture of the way God loves and and what the gospel is. We see it in the Exodus and other other places, especially in Jesus who, who dies to save us and he justifies us by faith so that, Romans 5.1, we can have peace with God. Do you know peace? Do you have peace with God? Come to Jesus and you will know the word is the shalom of God. When we have peace with God, it then translates to every other relationship in our lives. And we're gonna see how that's actually sealed with a meal, a fellowship meal. Look at verse 24. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water and they had washed their feet and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon for they heard that they should eat bread there. 
They're going to eat, not go to the dungeon. Peace brings us close to God and to one another, close enough to eat together. And that's what we see there in scene three. Scene three, verses 26 to the, to the end, we see the mercy of God. Verse 26, look there with me. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house, they, they, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. So the first time brothers came before Joseph, there were 10 of them. And if you remember, they bowed before him. But here, all 11 of them are present and they bow before him twice. And of course, we're, we're seeing a fulfillment, aren't we, of the dream in Genesis 37. As the brothers' sheaves of wheat bowed before his, the 11 stars in the sky bowed before him. The brothers don't realize they're fulfilling the dream that they hated so much, that prophetic dream that made them want to kill him, but they are. Now, we still don't see the sun and the moon. If you remember that dream, probably a reference to the parents. So we have an anticipation that we're going to see, see more come down the road. But Joseph is concerned about Benjamin. He's concerned about their father. Pick it up there in verse 29. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. I think we're just seeing an answer to Jacob's prayer. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. That same word is, is used here as a description of Joseph's compassion, mercy. It's like his affection boils up to the point where he can't contain himself and he sees his brothers and he sees especially Benjamin and he has to, he, he weeps. And then he speaks this, this fatherly, loving, brotherly um, blessing that really sounds like the ironic blessing of, of number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's actually a great outline for this, this passage. We're seeing God do all those things. So he steals away to weep so he didn't give away his identity. He's not ready to do that just yet. But God has answered Jacob's prayer. The brothers receive compassion and grace when they don't deserve it. And then they sit down to a meal together with the very one that they have betrayed. So look at verse 32. They served him by himself and then by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Okay, so there's these ethnic barriers that you see between the Hebrews and the Egyptians. The, 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 the Egyptians are saying, these guys are disgusting, <laughs> unclean. We're not gonna sit at the same table with them in a sense. Incidentally, that's why I think you don't see in the, in the Exodus 
When you see um, Israel just kind of growing in, in Egypt, you don't see a lot of assimilation, intermarrying between the Hebrews and the Egyptians. And so I think they grow into this great nation in the providence of God without the infiltration of idolatry. But what were the brothers thinking when, when Joseph arranged them by their birth order? You've got, you imagine what they're whispering to one another. Oh, here we go. What's God doing? In God's providence, how did he know? But then this final test, and it's actually not the final test. Joseph's got another test coming. See that more next week. But he gives them there in verse 34. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. Five times as much. So here's the test. Have you changed? Who, who are you now? I mean, surely he's, he's showing special affection for his brother, Benjamin, his full brother, but he's also testing to see if that same envy that almost got him killed is gonna be displayed in his brother's hearts. And I think you should just put yourself in those shoes just for a moment. You're sitting in what would be likely one of the most luxurious homes in the world at the time. The food is coming out beyond anything you've dreamed or seen before. And it's in a famine. So like, you know, you've ever been hungry, like a cracker is like really good. And then you look over and one of your brothers, the youngest brother, one your dad really likes, he's got five times as much as you have. You have all you need, but he has more. I don't want him to have more. Because we know our hearts, we know where our hearts go. But here's the miracle, it's not where their hearts go. It's not the way they respond. Look at, look at the rest of verse 34. And they drank and were merry with him. They drank a lot, apparently, if you see the, the footnote. And we're merry. They're, they're not the same. We don't usually put things like this in the category of like walking on water, but this is a miracle. This is, parents, imagine your family. Miracle, right? This is a miracle. A changed heart, a heart that is dying to self, growing to love others and rejoicing when they get good things that, that I didn't get. I didn't get the biggest portion. I didn't get the promotion. I didn't get the praise. Someone else got it. Someone else's church got it. A heart that's transformed by the love of God is the only heart that can respond like this. Genuine love for wanting the best in others. That doesn't happen naturally because we're humans. We need God. We need his love for it. It's a picture of his love, his peace, his mercy on display. It is a picture of Jesus Christ. To know Jesus is to know the love of God, this kind of love. And it is to know God. 1 John 4, 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Jesus has loved us when we didn't deserve it. He sacrificed himself for us. He shows us forgiving and justifying love. What grace, what mercy. And then John says, when we abide in him, we abide in God's love. And when we, we begin to love like Jesus and then God abides with us. God shows up. When we die to ourselves and love others, we're, we're actually finding ourselves walking more closely with him and we're loving like him. 
Just pray that we would display that kind of love as a church. Not because the other people deserve it on your row. None of us do. But it's how he's loved us. And then he invites the unclean, those who have betrayed him, to his table. We're about to go to that table. And let that land on you. The last time Joseph experienced a meal with his brothers, he was in the pit, left for dead while they enjoyed their meal as he's begging for mercy. And now he's their host. He loves them. He feeds them. He invites them to come dine with him. Jesus invites us as a church family to dine with him. He has made us clean purchased us, washed us with his blood and says, come, you are mine. Come to me, my bride. Come to me, dine with me. You are accepted. You are righteous. You are forgiven. You are my brothers and sisters. Will you come? Let's pray. Lord, we were once your enemies and now we are seated at your table. We thank you, we worship you and pray that you would be doing a powerful work in us as we contemplate these realities in these these next moments. Be glorified. Help us to abide in your love. Help us to abide in you that we might love others the way that you've loved us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.